So we are on lesson 10 of the fall quarter. The title of the lesson is Jesus Answers Questions. He answers uh, some interesting questions here. And the scriptures we're going to look at are Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 44. The first section is, Is it right to pay taxes? That's a nice... That's a nice topic, isn't it? Is it right to pay taxes? And that is uh, chapter 12, starting verse 13 through 17. No, we probably won't like the answer. So, so I'll, I'll go ahead and read that section to start out. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him, Jesus, in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay, so what stands out to you here? How were they trying to trick him? That's what they're doing. They're trying to trick Jesus, put him in a bad situation. That's what all the, this whole lesson is about. <laughs> they're, 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 trying, they're trying to do that over and over, yeah. So verse 13, they, and so that makes you wonder what they are they talking about, but if you look earlier in the chapter, the chief priests and the scribes, and the elders came to him back in chapter 11, verse 27, and they were asking him by what authority was he doing these things. And, of course, they were referring to he had just cleansed the temple, turned over the table of the money changers, and ran them all out. And they say, who do you think you are? Well, you know, he could tell them, well, I'm God. <laughs> but he didn't do that. He says, I'm, I'm God, yeah, no. But that's what they were saying. Who do you think you are? And so those are the people that are sending these. Remember, the Pharisees and Herodians are not natural allies, but both of them hate Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees didn't really like the Romans. The Herodians did like the Romans. And the Pharisees hated the tax, but they would pay it. There was a group in Israel at the time called the Zealots, and one of the disciples was a Zealot, Simon the Zealot. Okay, The Zealots were freedom fighters, and they would refuse to pay the tax. And then the Herodians agreed with the tax uh, because they wanted to be on Rome's good side and support the Herods. And the tax was in place since 6 AD, so it hadn't been that long 
you know, this is a what, AD 30, I think, or AD 33. So it was placed, put in place in 6 AD. And then verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. What are they doing? They're buttering him up. Yeah, they're flattering him. Does Satan use flattery? He does. Yeah, to try to draw you in. So this question was designed so that someone, no matter how he answered, would be upset at the answer. Because they wanted to fracture his following, basically. So verse 15, and then they say, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Verse 15, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? They're testing Jesus. Now, is that a good thing? Yeah. So what is Jesus' nature? Truth, yeah. His nature is he is fully human, but he's something else also, right? He's fully God as well. So is it a sin or not to test God? It is a sin. To test God, and that is in Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. So, and he said specifically, you are testing me. So they're, you know, they're clearly in sin. And then he says, bring me a denarius to look at. Oh, I have a question here. Have you ever been tempted to test God? How would you test God if you're going to? Okay, and seeing if God would save you? Oh, you knew somebody who did that? That's exactly what Satan tempted Jesus to do, isn't it? He took him to the pinnacle of the temple and told him to jump off, and then he quoted Psalm 91. Satan did. And that was a misuse of Psalm 91. And that was testing God, testing God to see if he would, you know, put your, putting yourself in danger to see if God would save you. That is testing God. Um, and that's one way that we could test God. Just put yourself, you know, yeah, on purpose, in harm's way, to see if God would save you. Or asking for a, a audible voice from God. I don't know how many people have heard say that. That is testing God. Why? Because he's already spoken. And it's right here. All you have to do is open this. And he will tell you what you want to know. Yes, he does speak to our conscience. So, testing God. We don't want to test God. Verse 16, they brought a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So, you know, we use money, don't we? If we want to eat, we do. And who, where does the money come from? God's the ultimate provider, but the money, you know, I have a bill in my wallet. Where did that come from? It's printed by who? 
by the government. Yeah. Right. That is right. It it is our means of exchange. Yeah. That's why we don't deal in barter any longer. Right. We have a fiat currency. We have you know more, which is simpler, to trade using money rather than barter. It, it it's easier. And th that is a service that is provided by the government. I know that we, that irritates us. <laughs> but So Jesus is saying, you use the government's money and services, you owe their taxes. But one thing that they would do, and the denarius, the denarius said that the Caesar was divine, that he was a god. And Jesus took a poke at him here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Caesar was going too far and saying that you owe him worship, which you do not owe him worship. You owe him his taxes, um, but you do not owe allegiance to him that only belongs to God. So what, what things do we owe the government? Right. The government, you know, makes the laws, uh, and we are to obey the laws. Do we obey all the laws? No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. How do we decide what laws we should not obey? if it goes against God's word. God's word is a higher authority. So, you know, for example, when the COVID, when COVID was shutting down churches and saying you could not attend church, that is a law that should be broken. Because scripture says in 10, Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, you shall not stop meeting together. Um, and we, we went along with it for three months, and I feel awful about doing that. Um, we should not have done that ever. Never. So, but if you disobey the government, you need to be prepared to face the consequence. You know, just like Daniel in the lion's den. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. But those, you know, other than that, then you should obey the government. Because the government is God's doing. Back in uh, Genesis 9, the Lord created human government. So, so anyway, yes, you should pay taxes. Uh, no, you should not worship the civil leader. You should worship God. And your heart and your soul are his. You don't give that to the leader, the human leader. Anything else about that? When tax time comes, this is hard teaching. <laughs> and, of course, we tend to complain about it. So, Okay, section C is, will the dead live again? Not section C, section B. And that's verses 18 through 27. Can I get somebody to read that one? Okay, thank you. 
So the, this is a, a, a different group. Before we had the Pharisees and the Herodians, here we have the Sadducees. Some Sadducees, in parenthesis, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. So the Sadducees denied the resurrection. The Sadducees were extreme conservatives. They denied the resurrection. They denied scripture except for the first five books of Moses, the Torah. What does Proverbs say? Now, this is Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. And really, this does not go against what the Sadducees are saying. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. So that says, do not add. Is it legitimate to add the prophets and the writings to the Torah? So the, that makes you think, well, what does Jesus think? He's probably a good source. What did, do you think Jesus thought about the Old Testament, about the prophets and the writings? That's the Tanakh, right? The Tanakh is the, the law, the Torah. The prophets is the Navim, and the writings are the Ketuvim, the Tanakh. Okay? And so, and that was Hebrew Bible, and that was all, that was all together and canonized by the time Jesus came on the scene. So, this is what Jesus thought. I have a few scriptures about what Jesus, talking about the Bible, said. This is John 10, 35. And he says, If he called them, well, going back one verse, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Okay, so Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. In Matthew 4, 4, what does he say? That's one of our memory verses. And that comes from Deuteronomy 8. And he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the Bible is our food. It is our spiritual food. But that really doesn't tell us, okay, how much of the Bible is legit. So for that, we go to Luke 24. Yeah, this is after Jesus rose from the dead. There are a couple of verses in Luke 24. Uh, I keep losing my place, which is very irritating. Luke 24, 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So with Moses and with all the prophets. So that's the Torah and the Nevim. Then he says in Luke 24, 44, 
Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So there are the three sections of the Tanakh. The law, the Torah, the prophets, the Navim, and the Psalms, the writings, the Ketuvim. So the entire Hebrew canon is inspired, according to Jesus. So the Sadducees were throwing out most of the Bible and saying that it didn't matter. Okay? And because the there's not much about resurrection mentioned in the Torah, they denied the resurrection. Okay? And so that's and that's one of their pet things, and so that's what they're coming and asking Jesus about. And so they bring him a, you know, there's probably a story. I can't imagine this actually happening. <laughs> there was a family that had a woman in it, married into the family, and she married all, all of seven brothers in her lifetime. And they all died, and there was no children produced. So they were not very affectionate, apparently. That was, that was a joke. <laughs> but, or, or everybody had genetic problems. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and that is 19 through 22. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. That was part of the Torah. Part of the Torah. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving no children. And the third likewise and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died. So their question was, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? That's a legitimate question for what they're starting from, you know. And, you know, I've thought about that. I have been married more than once. Right? I have thought about that. So, well, Jesus has an answer. There is no marriage after the resurrection. Okay, now that's good to know. Now, for some people that's good news. For other people that's bad news. Who would you, you know, what do you think? Is it good or bad that there's no marriage after the resurrection? And what makes the difference? Yeah, I think it depends on the status of your married, what you what you think about it. You know, if your marriage is good and very pleasant and you are, you know, in love and it's wonderful and everything's great, well, you think, gosh, that doesn't sound that great. If your marriage is difficult and painful and, you know, torture and stuff like that, well, it sounds pretty good, you know. And so um, it'll be different then. Fellowship will be sweeter, I'm sure. You know, marriage, yeah, marriage is fellowship, isn't it? Marriage is the closest human fellowship you can have on earth. And if it is based on the Lord, it can be heavenly. 
If it is not based on the Lord, it is hellish. They're two sinners in close approximation to each other and not giving each other any, any quarter, you know. And so it can be horrid if um, if you're not walking in Ephesians 5, you know, and, and both parties are trying to follow Ephesians chapter 5, which tells you how to have peace in your marriage. But Jesus says that they don't understand this. Verse 24. Is this not the reason you are mistaken since you do not understand the scriptures? Because they ignored most of the scriptures. Or the power of God. The power of God. I mean, the power of God is he can he created the earth by a word. The universe by a word. Nothing can stop him. Then he says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Like angels in heaven. Do the angels in heaven marry? Well, no, because there are only males. (laughs) For one, why? Because they're created by God individually. There's no reproduction of angels. Um, They're eternal creatures created individually by God. And now that goes against one of the doctrines that we teach related to Genesis 6. That not all of the church teaches. And that is the angel uh, view of the sons of God and the daughters of women, or daughters of men, sorry. Sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim. Uh, We do believe that angels are able to take on human form. They are not the angels in heaven. They are fallen angels. They are demons. And that is one of the reasons God was so brutal when he judged the earth with the flood. He wiped them out. He wiped out everyone except for eight on the flood, and they were pure human. And so I that I think, you know, people use this verse to contradict that teaching, but I don't think it contradicts the teaching because these are, the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6 are not angels in heaven. They're not angels in heaven. So the fellowship will be wonderful. There will be no fights Sunday mornings. Anybody ever had that? There's spiritual warfare. Yeah, spirit. There's spirit. You know, the the Satan stirs up things on Sunday. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but sometimes that happens. No, there's no devil in heaven. Well, there is right now. He he can go there, and he talks to God and he accuses us of sin, but eventually he won't be around. So I have something from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 related to marriage. This is 1 Corinthians 7.28. You don't have to marry right now. You don't have to. And Paul says it is better not to. It says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 
yet such will have trouble in this life. Okay? And I'm trying to spare you. So if you're able to live singly without sinning, you know, sexually, that is a better way to do it. Because, he says, right up front, this is God's word, if you marry, you will have trouble in this life. You will have trouble. Why? Because even if your spouse is a saved person, they still have a sin nature. And sometimes we fall back into our sin nature, and that will create problems between a husband and wife. And you will have trouble because, you know, you're, other ways you'll have trouble is that your family will get ill, they'll have problems, and you will be, that can be trouble, <laughs> you know. It can also be a means of growth, spiritual growth. So, I, you know, but, you know, and a lot of people want to get married. So it's not a sin to get married. Verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, so Jesus is dealing with this other issue, which they have not asked about, but they believe. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. How did Jesus counteract their denial of the resurrection in this verse? Notice he used a passage from the law, which they do believe. What did he say here that counteracted their belief? It's very subtle. Yeah, he used the tense of the verb to be. He said, I am. That's present tense. I am the God of these people. These people are dead, and yet they live. They exist. Why? Because I am their God not I was their God. It's not I was their God 2,000 years ago. I am their God now. That is how he defeated their argument. The tense of the verb. Yeah, they were there. And they, you know, how did they materialize? We don't know. See, the Lord makes things interesting. <laughs> <laughs> he makes things much more interesting. Yeah. So they're rebuked by Jesus for not believing in the resurrection by the tense of the verb, I me. That's the Greek word, Greek verb, I am, am, to be. So that gives us hope, does it not? You know, because all of us are gradually falling apart as we age. Yeah, so sometimes we have, you know, we we have kind of a, a general decline, and sometimes we have a little fall off a cliff, and then, <laughs> you know, and we know that if the if we are not the raptured generation, we will die. We know that if we are not the raptured generation, we will die. We hate to think about it. I don't like to think about that, but it's a fact. It is an undeniable fact. The mortality rate for this life 
is 100%. And so, he was, re- he was raptured. And that's what I pray for almost every day. And I, sometimes I feel selfish. I feel selfish that I want to be the ra- one of the raptured ones. I know I'm sure people 2,000 years have been praying for that. And they haven't. And Lord said, sorry, you're not the one. You're not the group. Sorry, you're not. Nope, 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 nope. Yeah. So, you know, it makes me think, you know, death isn't going to be that bad if the Lord doesn't answer my prayer request to be raptured. He, it hasn't happened yet. It could still happen. I'm still walking around. <laughs> yeah, it, that's right. It's not... It's not over till it's over. That's right. So anyway, this is our hope. This is 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what the Sadducees were doing. And this is the Corinthian Gentile, Corinthian church doing the same thing. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the Sadducees are right, there's no hope. But Paul goes on, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then in verse 23 it says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, that's us. We are going to be resurrected. Yeah, we will have bodies that will work perfectly, that will not be ill ever, that can go through walls, that can teleport, I'm thinking. It will be amazing. And does that give you hope? Yeah, it gives you hope. You know, that gives you great hope. So so anyway, Jesus... um, tears the Sadducees' arguments to shreds, both about the resurrection and about what happens with married people after death and into resurrection. Yeah, and he doesn't, and you don't believe in resurrection. Yeah. So they were trying to show how foolish it was. And he turned the tables on them. You know, they're the fools. If you don't believe God's word, you're a fool. That's Psalm 14. Right? And Psalm 53. Yeah, Psalm 53. That's why we're training. We're training for reigning. So section C, which commandment is most important? Twenty Verses 28 through 34. That is right. You looked ahead. <laughs> no. Okay, verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, 
asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, for you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So the scribe came and he was not antagonistic. He was not antagonistic, although he was not yet believing. His question seems genuine. Those are the people who are ready to get saved. The ones who come and they're, uh, they're not mocking. They're wondering. Verses 29 through 31, Jesus answered, and he started out with this Shema, right? That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. That was what the Jews recited uh, twice a day. They would recite that. The Mosaic Law fleshed out how to practically love God and others. How can we do that today? Are we under the Mosaic Law today? Right. Christ has fulfilled the law. Yeah, Jesus changed everything when he came. Um, he is the only one who's fulfilled the Mosaic Law. No one else has ever done it. He did it. And he has made a promise that if we trust in him, we have done it in him. He transfers his righteousness to us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So Jesus changed the sin that sends you to hell from failure to keep the Mosaic Law, which really never was, because even the Old Testament saints before Christ came were saved by the promise of the Messiah. Because back in Genesis 3.15, God made that promise right after the fall. The seed of the woman would come and he would destroy Satan. And so you have to trust in the seed of the woman all the way through from Genesis 3. Um, that's the only way to be saved. So basically, there's one sin that sends you to hell. Failure to trust in the one who fulfilled the law. If you fail to trust the one who fulfilled the law, you pay for your own sins. Somebody pays for your sins. Either he does or you do. It's that simple. Somebody has to pay for those sins because God is holy. So if Jesus doesn't pay for them, you got to pay for them. And the place you pay for your sins is hell, the lake of fire. That's right. And, you know, I mean, it, the, the punishment will be 
graded depending on the degree of your sin. These Hamas fighters, I would say, would be in a pretty deep spot unless they turn to Christ before they die. They'll be in a pretty deep spot. Stalin, I would say, would probably be in a deeper spot. More intense, eternal pain. You know, but they'll be pain. Mahatma Gandhi will be there. And he will not have as much pain. But he will be there. Because he didn't believe in the one who fulfilled the Mosaic Law. So, you know, people talk about the unpardonable sin, and there's kind of a unique unpardonable sin for first century Israel when they attributed Jesus' miraculous powers to Satan. That's when the kingdom offer was withdrawn, never to be returned to them again. Um, but the unpardonable sin is failure to respond to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit convicts you that Christ is the answer for your self, your own problems, you know, he is the answer. And if you reject that, that is unpardonable because you're going to go to hell. That's rough, isn't it? It's simple. <laughs> you know, Jesus is perfect. He loves you. You can see that by him going to the cross. You know, to reject him is unconscionable. And if you reject him, you're going to go to hell. So don't reject him. So verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. There is no one else besides him to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe, uh, put these two loves, to love God and to love others, above the sacrificial system. Okay? And he was correct. They are above the sacrificial system. So what is the purpose of the sacrificial system under the Mosaic Law? Yeah, why did you use the sacrificial system? Yeah, you did it when you were in sin, didn't you? Sacrifices for your sin. You could do sacrifices just because you wanted to dedicate yourself to God as an act of worship. But, you know, especially the, the sin offering is for sin, is to ask for forgiveness of sin. It's remembrance, yeah, of what Jesus did. So, do we have something similar today to the sacrificial system? Because we no longer offer animal sacrifices, right? We don't have a place in the back with a, a bronze altar that we slay a little goat on every afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, you know. We don't do that. And we also have a verse. Right? And that's 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is based on a sacrifice. That verse is based on 
his sacrifice, which he shed his own blood. And we look back to that when we ask for forgiveness of sin. Yeah, that's like the burnt offering, isn't it? The burnt offering is dedication of yourself to God, holy to God. The burnt offering, holy burnt to him. Right, and that's how we keep from sin, right? Number one, we reckon ourselves dead to sin, which is a true statement. Because when we accepted Christ, we died. So we're dead to sin. So we are not no longer required to respond to it. And instead, we offer our bodies to God for use. And um, that is our act of worship. So verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So maybe Jesus knew something about this guy. You know, he is prescient. He can't see the future. Maybe he, we're not told in the text that he came to believe later, but he was dancing around that point. He was dancing around that point because he was not antagonistic. He was asking legitimate questions. And so he was close. Herodians, right? They're more of a political group. They, they, they supported Herod. Yeah, the, the scribes, the scribes were, um, yeah, they were, well, for one thing, the Pharisees accepted all of Hebrew Bible. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So the Sadducees were kind of, you know, weirdos. <laughs> but, um, but they were experts in the law of Moses. Okay, where are we at? Oh gosh, we're two behind. So section D is, how is the Messiah David's son? Let me just read that. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Okay, so Jesus is trying to teach them who the Messiah is. They're calling him son of David. That was true. He is the son of David because he's descended from David, humanly. But he is also David's Lord. And that is his divine nature. Okay, and so Jesus is teaching them that the Messiah is the God-man. That's what we have to understand. We have to, we're only saved by the God-man. The cults will present to you a Jesus who is not the God-man. The Jehovah's Witnesses say he is not God. You cannot be saved by Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You cannot be saved by the Jesus of the Mormons. Because he is not the God-man. It is only the God-man who can save you. 
so in doing godly things for self-aggrandizement, that's a nice word, is sin. It is Satan's sin. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes and stuff were doing. It, Satan's sin is pride. So we should do it, but anonymously and humbly. Like Jesus says, Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the Pharisees are receiving condemnation. Why? It says these will receive greater condemnation. Will any believer receive condemnation? No. Why? There is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the separating line. If you are in Christ, you will be judged, but you will be judged for a reward. If you're out of Christ, you will be judged, but your good deeds will be ignored, and you will be judged for your crimes. Jesus separates the two. The unbeliever will be judged for crimes against God and other people. The believer will be judged for acts of faith. Acts of faith are rewarded. Good works that are not in faith will be ignored. Sin will be ignored. Why? Because Jesus already paid for sin. Okay, so we know that these Pharisees are not saved because they're receiving greater condemnation. Okay, so one last one, and we'll go through, like, run through a race, breaking the tape. <laughs> Section E is, a widow gives all that she has. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came, you know, that's why we pray for these Hamas terrorists, so that all these things they did on October 7th are ignored. If they're saved, all their murders and, and mutilations will be ignored by God. And only what they are done in they do in faith will be judged. So we pray for the Hamas terrorists for that. And anyway, I got myself too excited and lost my place. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. This is a counterexample to the Pharisees. Uh, the poor widow had two coins that was worth a cent. She gave everything she had without any fanfare, just anonymous. She just walked up and dropped it in. But God noticed. Jesus noticed. Time's up. <laughs> so is this prescriptive or descriptive language? In other words, is this something that all believers should do, give everything they have? Or is this something describing what she did, but not something that all believers should do? Should all believers give everything they have? Okay. That is right. Yes, that is right. 
So no, this is this is descriptive of what she did. This is not the Bible telling us that we need to give everything we own. The rich young ruler was given the same, he was given a command to do this because money was his idol and God was trying to break him of idolatry. Jesus says God. Yeah, right, come follow me. So, but no, let me tell you what is prescriptive to us as far as giving goes. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Yes, thank you, Krista. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we want to give as generously as we can. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. You make up your own mind. Not grudgingly, so don't do it grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you give as generously as you can, you give cheerfully, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God will supply you with enough to give. So Lord, we thank you for all these teachings and help us to walk in, with you and follow you. And we pray that we will have many acts of faith to be rewarded at the Bema Seat Judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.